0: Welcome to this program. We have Dr. E. Michael Jones with us. Dr. Jones is a Catholic historian and philosopher. He is the editor of Culture Wars magazine and the author of numerous books, including Degenerate Moderns, The Libido Dominandi, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, Iron Metal, and most recently, Logos Rising. Dr. Jones, it's uh, truly an honor to be able to speak to you.
1: Thank you. Good to be here.
0: Dr. Jones, uh, the, the key idea that runs through all your work is, is based on the concept of uh, logos. Can you tell us a bit about this word, its uh, origins in Greek philosophy with the pre-Socratics, its development further with uh, Plato and Aristotle, until St. John adopts this term, validates and perfects it when he uses the term in the gospel.
1: Yeah, I think uh, around the 8th century BC, all across the world, people all woke up to the idea that there was some type of order to the universe, and they moved away from the idea, the kind of anthropomorphic idea of gods, more than one god, and they started to realize it, 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 uh, there was a god, but um, it was not something you could reduce to any type of human being or any type of uh, agency like that. It was bigger and it was more complicated and more abstract. I think the key word is abstract. And uh, that's when the word uh, logos, that's when philosophy began in Greece. I think it's also when it happened in India as well, with the Vedas, with the concept of Urta. Also in China, the idea of Tao and Conf- Confucius, all over the world. Uh, but. It only it developed in Greece. Uh, beyond that, uh, and, uh, so it's it, it, the the Greek pre-Socratic philosophers were uh, physicists for the most part, uh, and they tried to reduce this idea of the unifying principle of the universe to something material. And so Thales said it was water. And, uh, Anaxagoras said it was air. And eventually, Heraclitus said it was fire. But by fire, he w- he didn't mean just anything, you know, like the, the physical thing. I think he meant it as a symbol, a symbol of some type of force. So we would call it energy. And energy is a part of the universe because the universe seems to be in motion. And uh, this energy... Uh, a contradictory nature, a contra- kind of contradictory nature, because it was always changing and it was always the same. That's the way a flame is. It's always changing and it's always the same. And at that point, he started to use the word Logos. And then Logos kind of got frozen uh, in an abstract pattern uh, like geometry. Pythagoras understood um, Uh, number as the source of the universe and the philosophers all were aware of that and they understood the power that numbers had but it it wasn't number either and so you had this constant development of refining of what the word logos meant over this period of time until finally uh, Plato and Aristotle came along and they tried to reduce it to the ultimate reality Aristotle said it was the uncaused cause and the unmoved mover which makes sense but it's not very consoling because uh, it's not maybe it's not any anything a force maybe it's not a person maybe it's just geometry all over again and Plato said it was the demi ergos and that's where philosophy ended pretty much. you have two competing ideas of ultimate reality. no one was Intelligent enough to reconcile them. And so that's where it stood, at, let's say around 300 BC. Um, and that changed with uh, the arrival of Jesus Christ, the incarnation. Uh, up till that time, everyone believed in Platonism. Aristotle was pretty much forgotten by that point. Uh, and Platonism said that there were forms up there, abstract forms that never changed. And if you wanted to be happy, you should rise to the realm of form because things never change. And when things change, they always get worse. So That way, they'll always be the same. And so Augustine, even 300 years after the arrival of Christ, was still influenced by platonic philosophy and tried that for a while and failed. He failed because of his own personal flaws, because of his own personal concupiscence. But he also failed because uh, it was an obsolete project now, because Jesus Christ had come down. And so what what St. John did was take that idea and expand it, as you mentioned. And he did that at the beginning of his gospel. And I think that the beginning of that gospel is relevant, because I think that St. Paul had preceded John. They were both in Ephesus at the same time. Uh, St. Paul had been expelled from the synagogues. He was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He converted. And the Jews now had uh, adopted their new identity, which was hatred of Logos. They rejected Jesus Christ. They rejected the Logos incarnate. They expelled people like Paul from the synagogue. And at that point, Paul went to Greece because Greece was the It was the language of uh, the uh, intelligent person. It was the international language. It was the language of philosophy. And he showed up at Athens, at the Areopagus, and gave a speech to these people who were philosophers. And uh, he gave the wrong speech. He gave the Ephesus speech in Athens. And the Ephesus speech was for idol worshippers because Ephesus was run by idol worshippers basically silversmiths who made uh, statues of Diana. That's how they made their living. And when he attacked idol worshipers in Ephesus, he threatened the local economy completely. So he gave the wrong speech. And I think St. John knew that because he told them uh, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Well, who is he? Who is this guy? Uh, In the Gospel of St. Matthew, they gave a genealogy that traced him back to David and all the way back to Adam. Well, those people. None of those people knew that. They didn't know those, who those people were. And so St. John changed the whole uh, framework. He said that Logos, in the beginning, there was Logos. Logos was with God, and Logos is God. And I think that provided a way of talking to people who weren't Hebrews. And I think that's the same situation that the church faced repeatedly throughout the next two millennia. And I think it's a situation that the church faces uh, faced in in India, for example. When the Portuguese showed up, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm ignoring the whole St. Thomas story, but when the Portuguese showed up, uh, how are you going to talk to these people? How are you going to talk to people who have never heard this story before? And I I was in Goa, and I saw the body of St. Francis' Saviour. The Jesuits chopped off his arm uh, and sent it back to Rome. And now the body is starting to decay. It's starting to dry out, but it's pretty much incorrupt. It was incorrupt from the time uh, he died. And uh, he's buried in Goa, but St. Francis didn't spend a lot of time in India. He, he, I, I think, yeah. he was, I, to be honest with you, I think he was discouraged by the situation in India. I think he found it so overwhelming and so disorganized, and so, just overwhelming. I've been to India myself, I find India overwhelming. There are all these people, there are 33 million gods, how are you gonna deal with a situation like this? And he decided, I'm leaving, I'm out of here. He left, I think he stayed there, what, nine months? Something like that, and then he left, and he went to Japan, and when he went to Japan, he dressed up like a the uh, the philosopher there, the Bonza, and he brought them telescope and an astrolabe, because he knew he had to start a conversation with people who were – these were not savages, it was a, a, a high civilization – but how do you talk to a high civilization when you have no common denominator, you have no history, this is the first time you've met these people? Well, the answer is Logos. Because everybody everybody is a creature of Logos. The fact that we speak, the fact that we can speak to each other, even though I have to learn Japanese and that's difficult, uh, we still have this ability to speak to each other. So once you master that, what are you going to talk about? Well, you're going to talk about the universe as we understand it. And you're going to talk about the stars. And that's what he did. And then he tried to go to uh, China couldn't get a visa. He had some, some uh, human traffickers dropped them off on an island, and then they just left them there. And he died there, and he never made it to China. And he was going to China because China was the source of Japanese culture. And if you got the Chinese to do it, then the Japanese would follow suit. And that's what he understood. So that's what uh, he died there. But eventually, another Jesuit showed up by the name of Matteo Ricci, another Spanish Jesuit. And the first thing you have to do when you go somewhere is you have to learn the language. The Jesuits understood that. And so they were good at learning languages. They did this all over the world because that's the basis of Waldox. It's speech. It's language. So he learned Chinese. The Jesuits went into Paraguay. They learned Guarani in the middle of the jungle in Paraguay. They went to uh, Quebec, and they learned whatever. I forget the name of the language there, but they went off with the Indians on the moose hunt in the middle of winter. Suffered enormous privations to learn the language. You have to learn the language. So Matteo Ricci went, and he learned Chinese, and he got so good at Chinese, he wrote one of the classic books in Chinese. To this day, it is a Chinese classic. He was a skilled, and then when he learned Chinese, he brought them a telescope, and he started a discussion about the logos of the universe, and how the logos of Christ in that. Now eventually, uh, Ricci died, and there was a big controversy in Rome about the Chinese, specifically their ancestor worship. His ancestor worship, idolatry, Is it what we do do when we put a wreath on our mother's grave, you know, on Memorial Day or something like that? You know, and they went back and forth between the Dominicans who said it was idolatry and the Jesuits who said they could accommodate. And eventually the Dominicans won out. And so they sent uh, a bishop there to who claimed to speak Chinese. He embarrassed himself because he didn't speak Chinese. And the emperor just kicked them out, kicked the Christians out of China. So we, we can't talk to people who can't speak our language or read our language. How can we talk to people? But you, the legacy of this is you have preachers coming there. Dominicans are the order of preachers. So the Dominican would show up in the Chinese village and he'd have a crucifix and he'd wave this crucifix just like St. Paul. I preach Christ and Him crucified. But he couldn't speak Chinese, and so he had to do yeah, a lot right. translation. How do you know what the translator is saying? Who knows what that man is saying? And what I'm saying here is that the whole evangelization of Asia failed, except for Goa and the Philippines. Otherwise, it failed. All of the big cultures, India, China, Japan, all failed. And so now I think we're back at that moment again where we need to talk uh, because I we need to talk about Logos in Asia. Because I think there is a hunger for that. They understand they've they've adopted Western technology, but they understand that there's a bigger picture here than simply technology. But more importantly, that technology grew out of a philosophical understanding of the universe. And so you're having, you have the technology, but you don't have that fundamental philosophical understanding. that can. And you need that, because how are you going to know how to use the technology? How do you know how to use it? Well, that's the biggest problem in the world right now. We have technology, and we don't know how to use it. We don't know what's... So right now, the, the, the default setting for the entire world is... If you're rich, if you have the technology, you can use it to get rich, and you can become richer than everyone else, and then, you could, then you're above the law. That's the big problem in the United States of America right now and in the entire world. Basically, if you own the technology, you have no moral responsibility to anyone, and that's the problem with big tech right now, which is being used as an instrument of control. So what we have to do is take a step back. I mean, I've spent time in Iran. I think that's the problem in Iran. You got all these ladies who are studying physics, and they're becoming nuclear physicists, but they're not having children. Iran has a tremendous birth problem right now. Well, how do you fit in having a family and knowing nuclear physics? They don't know the answer to that question. They do not know the answer. And there's a big crisis in Iran right now, aside from the problems that the United States is causing there with this stupid Israel-first foreign policy. That Israel-first foreign policy has united the country on a kind of war footing, and it means that they're postponing dealing with that big issue because I I was there I gave a talk on on sex nobody talks about sex in any rational way in Iran the mullahs don't know how to talk about sex you can go to Qom the holy city of Qom and you can get a two-day marriage they'll give you a marriage certificate you take a woman there you can be married to her for two days like a weekend well West. When they do that in the West, it's called prostitution. But the uh, mullahs will allow that because they don't understand sex; they just don't understand. So, as I said to one of the women, what happens if you get pregnant during your two-day marriage? What happens then? Well, obviously, you didn't. The the mullahs haven't figured that one out, have they? You know. So anyway, uh, this is a long way of, of basically describing what I think is the the moment, the problems in the world right now and the moment of opportunity that we have in Asia right now.
0: Right, that's uh, that's excellent. Um, Dr. Jones, you you mentioned uh, about URTA in India. What stopped it from developing?
1: Usury. I think that that was the the article by Ravinder Baines in Culture Wars, made that pretty clear. So usury is a problem. I wrote a book called Barren Metal, A History of Economics as the Conflict Between Labor and Usury. Usury has been a temptation. It's been a sin. It's been a problem. As long as there have been human beings, it is older than recorded history, I think. Every ancient culture had usury. And if you have usury, you concentrate wealth into fewer and fewer hands. Uh, which is the problem we have right now, because capitalism is state-sponsored usury, and we all live in capitalist societies, including China, which is a, a the worst of both worlds. It's communism when it comes to uh, political life, and it's capitalism when it comes to economic life. So the problem here is, uh, by its nature, compound interest is unrepayable. You cannot pay it back. Uh, loans become... Uh, impossible to handle after a certain period of time, 70 years, they become impossible to pay back because of compound interest. So at that point, you're faced with a choice. What do we do? What do we do when it becomes obvious that you can't pay back loans? Well, you can have the Jewish, uh, the Hebrew solution, which is the Jubilee year. You have to forgive the loan. So every 25 years, all the loans are canceled. Well, that was God's... uh, God's choice, because the Hebrews at that point were God's chosen people. Uh, This is before the coming of Christ. They hadn't rejected Logos at that point. Interestingly, what happened to the Jews after they rejected Logos? They became usurers. That's that's all they did during the Middle Ages. In in Europe, they they just lent money, and they're doing it today. All of these hedge fund operators, 18 of the biggest 20 hedge fund operators, run by Jews. So they're, they're, it's usury. And I think what happened in India is the same thing. So instead of coming up with a uh, the Logos solution in India, they turned usury into a religion. And the religion is uh, based on the caste system, and the caste system is based on the difference between debtors and creditors. So instead of saying, yeah, it's a bad economic, let's turn it into a religion and we'll put the top people, the creditors on the top, and they are special people, and we'll put the debtors all the way down at the bottom, and we'll create an immutable society, an immutable, a society where nothing changes, you can't move from one class to another, and you will always be crushed by debt, or you will always be enriched by, by, the, uh, by uh, money coming. I think that's what happened in India. That's why I said this, I, I had this discussion with him, and, uh, I say, you know, obviously there's Logos. If your people are talking to each other, there's some form of Logos. But the, the development, the understanding of it simply died. It died. And what happened when it died? You have the proliferation of usury. You have the usury being uh, enshrined as part of a religion. And you end up with 33 million gods. Well, that's that's not Logos.
0: I think the article uh, that Ravidra Baines wrote also mentioned uh the Indian alchemy of uh, using cheap labor. Any
1: thoughts on that? Yes, it's the biggest curse in India right now. It is the biggest thing holding back the development of the Indian economy, because anyone who gets a skill in India is tempted to go someplace else because you can get paid better someplace else. Then you can't. So India is constantly losing skilled labor because the wages are too low and the wages are low because you have a large population that is used to working for nothing. So when I was there, I saw Indian women with bowls of dirt on their head. Okay, well, wait a minute, there's a better way to do this. You know, there's a better use for women. You can put them to better use than walking around with bowls of dirt on their head, it's ridiculous. I didn't, I never, I mean, Ravi, I told this to Ravi, I said I never saw a wheelbarrow when I was in in India. Never saw one. All I saw were these women with bowls of dirt on there. So he finally sent me a, a picture of a wheelbarrow. Somewhere he found a picture of a wheelbarrow in India. But the point here is that I mean, wheelbarrow is not high technology, right? It's really not high tech. Um, uh, but it's a much more efficient use than that bowl, bowl of dirt. Why are you I'm using those I'm- women? Why are you using those women to move dirt? Well, because they're cheap. And as soon as you reconcile yourself to a cheap labor force, you will not develop. You will not develop economically. Now, you've got, uh, I hope you don't get in trouble here by me saying this, but you've got Narendra Modi playing a completely duplicitous double game here. Okay? On the one hand, he's promoting Hindu nationalism, a violent form of Hindu nationalism, where uh, nuns are being murdered, uh, uh, attacked on the street because they are visible. Where Muslims, if there's a, a rumor that a Muslim uh, desecrated a cow or ate a cow, a mob will come and murder the man. This is true. Like Modi is saying nothing about this. We we had in the West we had we have this idea of Indians from the. Maharishi, with the when the Beatles went there, and it's all peace and love, and they're all uh, 1.3 billion hippies there. That's not the way it is. It's a violent country, and it's violent because of the of the absence of logos. If you can't talk, you have to act, and you can be you become violent. So that, that that's the problem here. So on the one hand, Modi is promoting Hindu nationalism. But he's also promoting India as the cheap labor capital of the world. And he's, and he's working hand in glove with the oligarchs so that the oligarchs can come in and exploit cheap Indian labor. This is a disastrous foreign policy. It's bad in, in, in any number of different ways. And the Chinese now have awakened to this fact. And what's going on in China now is wages are going up. Because China, in this in this respect, is the same as India. If you've got 1.3 billion people, well, that's a lot of people. You can have the best. The first market is the internal market. So if you double the wages of 1.3 billion people, you'd have enormous amounts of disposable income so that the Indians could buy their own products. But they have this bad idea, this bad idea of the... The, 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 the brahmin at the top and the untouchable at the bottom, and that has corrupted their understanding of labor. So there's a guy, uh, uh, the garment industry, classic example of what I'm talking about. So they flood America with cheap Indian garments, uh, works for a while, everybody rushes out and buys a cheap t-shirt. And then they start to realize, well, because no one's making anything over here, we don't have any money. And so suddenly the demand for garments dries up. And what what happened in America is all the middle level garment outlets, retailers, went out of business. Uh, Gap, Banana Republic, American Eagle, all went out of business now because of the uh, exacerbated by the COVID thing. But the main reason is... That people, Americans don't have money. Well, why don't Americans have money? Well, because they're not working. Well, why aren't they working? Well, because they outsourced all the cheap the jobs to India or China. They're making the money. The, the worker. So the problem is the worker in India isn't making money, but the boss, the owner, is making a lot of money. But now the bo- the owner's not making any money because you're not selling any garments in in America anymore. This is this vicious circle. It all begins with cheap labor.
0: That's uh, that's very interesting. Um, Dr. Jones, you've you've written extensively on ethnic identity, how it is logos and and not race, that is the basis of of a nation. Well, what is the best definition of ethnicity and why does ethnos need logos?
1: Ethnicity is based on language. So we first of all, all uh, Americans are confused because they all came from someplace else, and then when they come to America, they're supposed to adopt a new American identity. Well, it does—it doesn't really exist. It doesn't really exist because they abandoned their native language. But if you look at the the pure natural condition, you'll find it in Africa, in places like Kenya and Tanzania, which I have visited. So, Tanzania has 76 different ethnic groups. Well, they all look the same. I mean, I can't tell any difference. I can't tell, maybe they can. Apparently the Hutu and the Tutsi can tell each other apart uh, because they killed each other because you had these ethnic uh, struggles there. But what's the basis? It's not the color of their skin, it's the language that they speak. And that's the same thing that's true across the world because color of your skin doesn't do anything in terms of your behavior. Your your nose doesn't tell you how to act. Your hair doesn't tell you how to act. But your language is the vehicle of uh, all of the rules that you learn, uh, which tell you how to act. So language is the basis for identity. So that's, that's the issue uh, across the world. Now, the United States is an imperial power. We live now in the American empire, whether you like it or not. Most Americans don't benefit at all from the American empire. It's for the elites. They profit from it. The average person doesn't. And uh, race was important in America, as we define the term now, because you had English uh, colonies in places like Virginia uh, where they grew tobacco. And they had a mixed labor force. And the one thing that uh, oligarchs do not like is they do not like Organized labor. They like labor to be divided. And so they came up with a way of dividing labor according to they gave special privileges to the indentured servants from Europe. And they deprived the black slaves, the chattel slaves, of those privileges. And that's where the first the first time that the word white is used as a designator of people is in Virginia in 1607. You can look at the Oxford. English dictionary, according to historical principles. That's where it started to be used, and now it's being used all over the world in completely preposterous ways. So I have people, you know, I'm involved with a a debate in uh, what used to be Yugoslavia, and there's a Croat there. What's the difference between a Croat and a Serb? Well, the main difference is religion. Well, so now I'm talking to a Croat who's telling me he's a white guy. Well, Well, how, when did you become white? I'm talking to a Norwegian who thinks he's white. This is ridiculous. When did Norwegians become white? They've never been white, and they've never been white because they never dealt with a large black population, which was the experience of America. First in the South, they were all slaves. And then because of social engineering, all these black people were brought up into the big cities of uh, America, like where I grew up, Philadelphia. And they were used as proxy warriors for the oligarchs to drive Catholics out of their neighborhoods. That's the whole instance of race. That's why race is important. But it's an American phenomenon. So if you go to India, you've got a similar situation. India is probably not a country. It's a, it's a continent. You know, with a lot of countries in there, it's so big, and there's so many different people. You have groups of people. I mean, if you want to talk about racially or biologically, in the north they they're a little bit different than the people in the south. And the people in the south and It's all thrown into one country, and it was only the British who united all these people uh, because it was the the, the British Empire. So how do you, how do you bring all these people together? It's similar to the United States, except for the Indians have always been there. And the people of the United States are always coming over. They're always coming over. over. You need an ideology uh, to come up with that. And basically the ideology in the United States right now is race, is racism. We have racism is the official state religion of the United States of America. It used to be that if you were white, you were superior to blacks, but now it's if you're black, you're superior to whites. But it's never changed in terms of this racial ideology, because the oligarchs like this because it divides people in a way that uh, uh, religion and ethnicity do not. Okay, so you can be you can be Irish, and you can be Catholic, and there's no contradiction there, but you can't be white and Catholic. Because white is a is a is a competing religion. It's like saying you can be a, a Hindu and a Catholic. You know, it's they're, they're two different religions. They don't mix. You have to choose one or the other. And I'm saying that my identity. I keep telling people I'm not white. Okay, this is a label that gets pushed on me. I'm biracial. I'm Irish and German. This is where I came from. These are the languages my my people spoke. This is my identity, and then you add religion to it, because in the United States of America, when you stop speaking Gaelic or German, and you pick up English, the only source of your identity is religion. And I think that's de facto the case in India. India is the triple melting pot. You've got Hindu, Muslim, and Christian. Those are those are the big divides right now, and then you've got, a mil- I don't know, how many thousands of languages, in India. You probably. Yes, there's know. way too many. Yeah. So uh, if, if you want to live in Mumbai, you have to speak five languages just to get by. You know, and, and this this is the it's, this is the Indian problem. This it's the Indian issue. But I think that all over the world we have this identity crisis now because. Of the American empire, the collapsing American empire is determined to impose racism on the entire world. Now, I've spoken to people, Indians, who grew up thinking they were members of an inferior race because they weren't white or, quote, white. Well, this is ridiculous. But I mean, it's true. It's it's simply when you say you're white, what you're telling me is you don't have an identity. If you tell me you're a Norwegian and you tell me you're white, what you're really telling me is that you stopped going to church. You used to be a Protestant, uh, but the Protestant religion collapsed uh, during the course of the 20th century, and now you don't have an identity, and you're looking around, and you decided to impose this identity on yourself. It's a false identity.
0: So so what's the way forward um, if uh, ethnos do need logos? Uh, how can India move forward?
1: Yeah. So, okay, let's get, to, let's talk about the other side of the story. Okay. So, what is the state of nature? The state of nature is basically you're a Guarani living in the middle of South America in the, I don't know, this, the 14th century. And you can speak Guarani to your people, but there are people uh, over in the next valley who speak a different language. And your word for them is, uh, uh, those people they are called, your word for yourself guaraní if you're a guaraní guarani means human being so i am a human being and the people over there are the people who eat rattlesnake shit for breakfast that's the name that we give to those people because they are they are sub they are subhuman okay well that's that's not going to work over the long haul it's just not going to work okay because we know there's too many similarities. gonna So how do you deal with that? Well, ethnos is the state of nature, but you need some vehicle to talk to other ethnic groups. <laughs> you can't just live by yourself. No one can do that anymore. They, they, only play, they have done this with the Yanomami. The Brazilian government has deliberately isolated the Yanomami which is a primitive tribe in the Amazon rainforest. Uh, And they're trying to protect them from uh, diseases, okay? tourists come, they'll bring diseases, they'll all die of smallpox or something like that, okay? Well, they've gone way overboard. They've been influenced by Rousseau and the idea of the noble savage. And these savages are not noble at all. They're not noble. They are savages. What is a savage? A savage is someone who eats his own children. If the, if the government agent shows up, um, the savage will kill him. And he nothing, there will be no consequences. So the Brazilian government has created a, a system here in order in, in, in claiming that they're protecting the people, they've completely isolated them and condemned them to barbarism, to savagery forever. Well, you don't want to do that. We don't want to do that, because that's not part of Logos. So what happened when the Logos became incarnate? Well, suddenly you had Jesus Christ as the Savior of all of mankind, and all of mankind become brothers, because we are all descendants of Adam and Eve, in some sense, or other, in the very real physical sense. So now you need, Ethnos needs Logos, because you need to be able to talk to these people. So what did the Jesuits do in Guarani, they, uh, in, in uh, Paraguay? They g- gave the Guarani a dictionary. They wrote down a dictionary and they created a grammar. This was the vehicle of Logos and human history. That is the only thing that preserved the Guarani language to this day. To this day. There are many other tribes. They've all disappeared because they did not have their language to keep them together. And this is why Paraguay, I'm sorry, why Guarani is one of the main languages, the official languages of Paraguay. So the point is now you have to now establish an ethnic identity and you have to transcend your ethnic identity at the same time. Now, this is this. When we're talking about this, we're talking about something sophisticated like German idealism and the idea of the dialectic. Uh, basically Hegel, yes. you. Exactly, is exactly the word I'm talking about, because we have the German word, Aufhebung, which means to exalt and maintain. So you maintain your identity. But you transcend the barriers, the boundaries of your identity, and you're linked up with other people. Now, how do you do that? Because you're doing two opposite things. Well, that's life. That's life. You have to learn how to do two opposite things if you want to be successful in life. And that's one of the things. And so, what you have in the United States, the problem here is you obliterated ethnic identity. In order to create unity, and now you have people who are completely deracinated, have no identity at all. And then, when that happens, the government imposes racial identity on you. They impose. So the you, the, the problem where there is identity theft. The biggest problem in America is identity theft, and the American Empire engages identity theft on a massive basis throughout the world. So you become a Hollywood, uh, you know, you know, drink Coke, watch Hollywood movies. And will give you a new identity that will destroy you it will destroy you and that is the whole point of it so alf hebel you're right is at, is the key to understand this you exalt and you maintain and that is the third part of the dialectic and this is part that uh, hey if you read logos rising you'll understand why hegel uh, got the idea great idea because it's based on the trinity the whole idea of the dialectic is three is three parts, and it's based on the Trinity, which is also three parts. And so when the father begets the son, he doesn't become—the son isn't less than the father. He's, it's an exaltation of the father uh, through that power of love. And so the dialectic, if you understand it properly, is the key to understanding proper ethnic identity as well. So how do you do this? How do you do this? Well, you you have to have two languages. It seems that that's what you've got to do. You have to have your native language to give you the identity, the language you learn from your mother, the Muttersprache. You have to have a lingua franca, which is an international language, which allows you to speak to people throughout the world. This is what empires do. It's a good thing that empires do. So uh, Paul had to learn Greek. What's the difference between St. Paul and St. Peter? What's the difference? St. Peter did not speak Greek. St. Peter could not spread the word. He could not spread the gospel. He was limited to the Hebrew people, and they're the only people he could talk to, whereas St. Paul could go out and spread the word. So that's what we have to do. You know, we as as Americans, were crippled because we speak the universal lingua franca. So, we just don't learn languages here. We don't learn languages. So the an Indian told me what what do you call someone who speaks three languages? They're called trilingual. And what do you call someone who speaks two languages? That's called bilingual. Well, what do you call someone who speaks one language? Well, that's an American And that's that's the problem, because because we only have one language, we lost our ethnic identity. So the point here is that you have situations like in Kenya, for example, you have basically the tribal language and English, and English has succeeded, you know, in opening the Kenyans up to the world. Same thing with India. India is a, a, a continent that speaks two languages, at least two languages. You have to speak at least two languages, three if you include Hindi. If you include Hindi, well, this is the solution that Tanzania took. Tanzania, uh, Julius Nerera was the Catholic, first Catholic president of Tanzania, and he was a a brilliant orator in Swahili. And so Swahili became the real language of Tanzania. So that's three languages, because Swahili can only give you, uh, it's it's, uh, the the Arab slave trading language of East Africa, and you can't speak it anywhere but East Africa. So he created a national identity with Swahili, but that national identity cut them off from the real lingua franca, which is English. And
0: I think I lost you there, Dr. Jones. Can you hear me?
1: Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear okay. me?
0: Yeah, yeah, I can hear you now.
1: So, 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 the, let, let's give you an example right now. Do you know whether President Magafuli of Tanzania is alive or not?
0: I have no idea.
1: Well, we had reports here that he's, he's dead. Now, this is significant because President Magufuli was the man who stood up against the COVID lockdown in Africa. Uh, and yes. Bill Gates yes. was very upset. Bill Bill Gates was very upset with Magafuli, and he may have been murdered. Magafuli may have been murdered because he prevented. Uh, he would not allow COVID lockdown in Tanzania. Now, why? So he said there is no COVID. Why is there no COVID in Tanzania? The answer is because they speak Swahili. You didn't know this. But Swahili can prevent you from getting COVID because you can't understand. You can't get all of these reports from the World Health Organization about how you're going to die unless you wear a mask or other type of stuff. So Margo Foley just basically blocked that because Swahili. I'm sorry, Tanzania has a kind of bubble around it because of Swahili. So when I was there, I, I, I know about five words in Swahili. When I exhausted my language, my vocabulary, the guy asked me, well, don't you speak Swahili? I said, no, I don't. I'm sorry. He says, well, what are you doing in Tanzania? Why did you come to Tanzania if you don't speak Swahili? This, is, this is the You will never find that attitude in Kenya. You will never find that attitude in Kenya because English is the, the everybody everybody speaks English. So that's that's the trade-off you have to have. That's a kind of complicated version, you see. That's,
0: uh, that's very interesting. Um, can you also talk about how that dialectic process uh, worked out in Mexico? Is it, it almost happened overnight, didn't it?
1: Yes, now Mex- Mexico, uh, yes, I was in Mexico, and I'm trying to think about ethnic identity in Mexico. And I'm sitting in a church and I'm staring at an icon of Our Lady of Guadalupe, and suddenly so everyone says, well, this is the answer to ethnic identity in, in Mexico. They are the cosmic race. The Blessed Mother appeared as a mestizo. The mestizo me- means mixed race, mixed race people. So I'm at, <laughs> the funny thing is, I'm at a conference where they're celebrating uh, this man, and the, the man who was 100 years old had written a book about Adolf Hitler. And felt that uh, the, uh, the Hitler should have won World War II because he was a great hero. So here you have the the racial ideol the prime racial ideologist of the 20th century being celebrated by people whose identity is mixed race, mixed racial, as opposed as created by Our Lady of Guadalupe. So it was the the the, the, the Mexican nation was created like that, like overnight like that by our lady of guadalupe who basically reconciled all of the ethnic groups in mexico to christianity and that had not happened before that time and once they once they were reconciled they started mixing and there was no race racial explanation or racism in mexico now that changed when the uh, mexicans were conquered by a cabal of Freemasons, and that's the problem in Mexican history to this day. So it was a a vicious anti-Catholic campaign in the early 20th century with uh, Plutarco Cayas and these Freemasons who were getting money. Not only were they getting money from Freemasons in the United States uh, to murder Mexican Catholics, uh, Mexico became a haven for the communists as well at the same time. So you had Trotsky ended up in Mexico after he had to flee the Soviet Union. So you had basically the creation of the, if you want to call it race, in terms of the nation, that's the the Latin word would be nation. The Mexican nation is by nature biracial. And that was created by a miracle, basically created by a miracle. So this is an argument. And they, they still Mexicans still go to that Tilma. It's still there, you know the 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 image of Our Lady of Guadalupe that was on the back of the cloak of Juan uh, Diego, the the uh, peasant who uh, was the one who to whom the Blessed Mother appeared. So it's still there, but you've got it's like France with the French Revolution. You've got this alien identity now being imposed on the Catholic identity, and it's not going to work. It's not going to work. It's not going to work in Mexico until they remove these um, Masonic oligarchs who are working not for the good of the Mexican people, but for the good of their oligarchic elite and their contacts with the oligarchs in the United States. That, that's the biggest problem.
0: Excellent. Um, coming back to India again, uh, Ravinder Bain. I think, mentions how um, the the one point of unity all across India um, seems to be around religious polytheism. Um, Can you tell us a bit about um, what that is and and how it devolved from uh, seemingly a monotheistic uh, religion at the start? Yeah,
1: this is is the thesis of uh, Wilhelm Schmidt, the uh, divine word priest and the anthropologist. Who wrote a massive book uh, based on the experience of the divine word priest in the Pacific. Uh, it's called Der Ursprung der Gottes the source of the idea of God. And he said clearly that the, the more primitive the people, the more monotheistic they are. And you would think the opposite, but that is the case. We had uh, the fundamental apprehension of man uh, after the expulsion from the Garden of Eden, when you had to just start all over again and just work, you know, trying to get your mind back to close to where it might have been, uh, is that God is a father. So you got one father. Well, that led to mythology. So if God's a father, well, he must have a beard, right? Because fathers had beards, right? And if he's got, a, if he's a father with a beard, he must have a wife. And if he has a wife, well, they must have children. You go down that road, and you're getting farther and farther away from God, because he's not any of the He is a father, okay? But then you've got to understand it from a divine perspective, I and mean, you can only do that through Logos. You can't do it through mythology, and that was the big step forward that the Greeks made when they turned away from mythology, turned away from Homer. And all those gods, because they can't be gods. You can't be a god who is jealous of other gods or goddesses. You can't be you can't be, if you're a if you're god, you're not gonna be attracted sexually to some woman so that you turn yourself into a bull so that you can rape the woman or something. That's not God. This is what Socrates said. The, the, these stories were corrupting the youth of Athens. Because as soon as you hear the story, you think, "Well, if God can do it, why can't I do it?" Okay. Now the, the, the crucial turning point comes when you when you realize you pray to God because that's what God is. If there if there's a God, you pray to Him because He's the source of all power. Well, what do you pray about? Well, usually you ask God for something. Right. Well, given fallen nature, you're going to want things that you should not want. So you're attracted to your neighbor's wife and you find her really attractive. And you'd really like to have sex with her. So you're going to pray to God so that he will facilitate your adultery. Well, God's not going to do that. He gave you a commandment, you know, that you're not supposed to do that. But you really want to do it. So where do you turn? Well, you turn to gods, other gods. And this is the beginning of polytheism. Uh, By those gods, St. Augustine said clearly, they're demons. Uh, uh, fallen they're angels. Demons, demons are real. They're not just, uh, you know, fictions. They're real. They're real creatures. They're angels who have fallen, fallen angels, who want to destroy your life. So you you start praying to a demon that you call a god uh, and suddenly, yeah, it worked. Well, this is the beginning of polytheism. And polytheism is always decadent. It's always a sign of decadence. And so when you end up with 33 million gods, you've got a decadent culture. I hope I don't offend anyone by saying this, but it's true. Now the problem is, It's difficult to talk this way when you're in India, because no one can defend this rational. You can't defend the idea that there are 33 million gods. It's not rational. You can't worship monkeys and snakes. It's not rational. There's no logos there. But if you bring it up, you get a violent reaction, because the the Hindu doesn't know how to defend his religion with logos, so he, he gets violent and does it that way. Now you you have higher level, I just got into a, a discussion with a higher level Hindu, a kind of Hindu philosopher. And it came down to basically, he told me, well, my hang up is the principle of non-contradiction. I got to get away from the principle of non-contradiction. Uh, well, that's the problem there. You abandoned the principle of non-contradiction, so anything goes. So the question is, how do how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that fact, let's say in a place like India, uh, where you have the possibility of you're you're a persecuted minority, small group of people, and you've got a guy at the top who is promoting this crazy Hindu nationalism, as his way of staying in power, and he's condoning all sorts of violence? How do you deal with that? How do you deal with it? How do you deal with the fact that uh, you're not allowed to what they call proselytize? In, in, in India. Well, there's you can't hold back the Holy Spirit. You can't hold back Logos. You can't tell people to, to not to think those thoughts. I mean, this is what they're trying to do on the Internet right now. This is a sign that the whole American regime now has lost its hold on the American people because before you didn't have to ban people We didn't have the internet before, but you didn't have to ban people uh, because the people uh, all accepted your explanation. Well, now people don't accept your explanation. So now what are you going to do? That's the situation. How do you deal with this? And All I'm saying is, I mean, that's why I wrote the book Logos Rising. I think this is a way of dealing with this in a non-threatening manner or a way that I think would be more effective than simply showing up in a village in China and waving the, the crucifix, you know, uh, what's that? You know, what's this all about? That's that's too abrupt a way. So we have to all step back. Let's all step back and just just, just say, let's just talk about logos. Uh, let's just talk about that. And so I did with the Indian, with the Indian philosopher, and he said, well, you're hung up on the principle of non-contradiction. Well, is that a true statement or not? You know, if it's true, it's not false. And if it's not false, how do we know? Well, the only way you know that is because of the principle of non-contradiction. So you contradicted yourself. proceed that far. I think we could proceed all along those lines because people are open to talking about
0: it. All right. Um, I first came across your work uh, two years ago when you came on the Patrick Coffin Show. Uh, the one that you did on architecture i think your book uh, living machines you, you mentioned how bauhaus um, is based on a, a truncated notion of logos that that came out of the the enlightenment now would you consider the metric system to be a manifestation of uh, the truncation of logos that that happened during the french enlightenment
1: yes yes uh, is first of all how do you how do you uh, the The Ingo system is is more is is more accessible. Let me put it this way. It's more accessible because in order to divide something, all you have to do is fold it in half. or have you ever have you ever tried to cut a pie into three pieces? Uh, or cut a pie into five pieces, or better the best of all, try and cut a pie into ten pieces. Tell me how you do that. How do you cut a pie into ten pieces? Well, you don't. You can cut it into 12, you know, you can cut it, you cut it in half, and then you can cut in, in that in half again, and you keep cutting in halves, and you go to a half, a quarter, an eighth, a sixteenth, a 32nd, and you can do that. So there's, when you impose the metric system, uh, you're involved in problems from a practical level, but I mean, it's probably easier to calculate with a computer, with uh, a, a metric system. but. The point I'm trying to make here is that the Enlightenment was a truncation of Logos. And the truncation began with Descartes, who was a Frenchman, uh, where which is in many ways the source of the Enlightenment. At the beginning of the Enlightenment was France. And it was uh, basically mathematics, the mathematics of the real world. And this world we live in is really... So it turns out it's kind of Platonism. Where you're dealing, the reality is in forms, and existence is a non, kind of a, 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 uh, not so much a non-existence, but a, a, an inferior realm. Well, that's, that's not, that's not the incarnation. Okay, so I'm now involved, I'm now involved in a book on beauty. I'm writing a book on aesthetics. And the thing our first part of the book is about art in Italy. An enormous breakthrough in terms of art in Italy. Uh, now geometry is part of it, but it's not the whole story. And the the, the 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 point here is that at a certain point we the West had to break with the idea of Platonism. Because Platonism was it was helpful. I mean, it's true that when you talk about form and matter, that makes sense. Uh, it's true that you have to have a form, and the form is immaterial, like the soul in the body. Uh, what happens at death? You, they, they, we have an expression, you breathe your last. There's a spirit, and it comes out of your mouth. And when that spirit comes out of your mouth, your body falls apart, and that's called death. Death. And that's a completely immaterial thing. But Plato had a crude understanding of it that was refined by, he felt it was basically an angel, uh, a soul that pre existed and got kind of stuck in your body, which also pre existed. Well, that's not the way it works. And Aristotle was much more sophisticated. And Thomas Aquinas was much more sophisticated than that. And basically rehabilitated existence, that there is a logos to existence. And that that's where the, the, the form comes into being through existence. It doesn't exist before that. It comes in. Well, this liberated the Italians from Greek models. And they started painting reality. And reality is important. The ability to deal with reality is important. And that's what liberated uh, the West. Well, then uh, you have this incredible breakthrough. Just look at the development of art. Let's say from Giotto to Michelangelo and especially the sculpture of Michelangelo like David. Tremendous breakthrough in terms of art, because they broke with the Platonic form. They broke with it. Well, now what happens with the Enlightenment? Well, you have the same, you're reverting back to that kind of truncation that Plato established, except now it's called Descartes, it's called Cartesianism. And suddenly the only real world is the world of numbers, numbers, And science is the world that tells you about numbers. And then you end up with a completely alienated uh, existence. And that's the Enlightenment. And the expression of that was Bauhaus. So Bauhaus is geometry, but it's not beautiful. You know, because you need some type of life. If you put life together with geometry, then you have beauty. But it was just a, a truncation of life. And it was a truncation of human existence because you thought, well, you create these these uh, vuln machines, these machines for living, and everyone will be happy because all human beings want is a certain amount of sunshine, certain amount of food, certain amount of sex, and they'll be happy. Well, it didn't work out that way because the, it, they, they, the building was not built with the transcendental nature of human beings in mind. And so it failed failed in the 1970s, and there was a reaction that said it. Excellent,
0: uh, thanks for coming on, uh, Dr. Jones, can, can you tell your audience where they can find your work?
1: Yes, yeah, so you can go to culturewars.com, subscribe to Culture Wars magazine, uh, or you can find all of my books, they've all been banned from Amazon. After listening to me today, you can understand why they would ban them. Uh, because it's a good explanation of how the oligarchs uh, are controlling all of us and how Logos is the way out of that control. So go to culturewars.com.
0: Good. Uh, I'm I'm currently reading the the Jewish revolutionary spirit, and I have to say I'm I'm really blown away by the the depth of your research and effort. Dr. Jones, uh, let's offer up a Hail Mary for for the rights of Logos, especially in India. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus.
1: Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now at the hour of our death. Amen.
0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks again, Dr. Jones. It's been an absolute pleasure.
1: My pleasure. Peace.
0: Thank you.